This is Craig Martin, and you're listening to the Sheriff Broadcast. everybody to an exclusive episode of the sheriff guys today i'm able to have one of my true idols in front of me right now and ladies and gentlemen today i feel that it is a simple celebration it's a celebration of history pride determination and resiliency my guest today represents all of the above my guest was the third black hockey player to ever play in the National Hockey League, ladies and gentlemen. But more importantly, he is a great role model, father and friend. He's been a role model of me and many others for a very, very long time. Over 500 games when you combine the NHL and AHL, ladies and gentlemen. He is a pioneer that leads by example and has a heart of a warrior. Ladies and gentlemen, without further ado, Mr. Bill Riley, how are you doing this afternoon, my man? I'm doing fine. I'm uh, just pleased to be on your show. And it's, it's always nice when young men like yourself remember us old fellas. Well, Bill, I'll tell you one thing, brother. We have to remember. Because history in the sport, in my opinion, is the most important. I'm a big history buff. And you, my friend, are a huge part of not only black hockey history, but just hockey history in general. And I can't wait to get into some of these things, my brother. So now I like to go to the beginning, Bill. I want to talk about Amherst. I believe that you're the pride of Amherst, Nova Scotia. I want you to talk a little bit about what it was like to be a young fella back in Amherst, Nova Scotia, my friend. Well, like I said, we we grew up and uh, didn't have a lot, you know, like uh, my dad worked hard at labor work. My mother was a domestic and, uh, you know, they did the best they could. Uh, there was, you know, there was five children and uh, we went on. Uh, we played a lot of road hockey, uh, you know, and a lot of. And when the ponds froze over, we we played on the ponds. We didn't know anything about minor hockey at the time until one, my best friend came over and said, "Listen, we can uh, we can sign up uh, to go play minor hockey." And uh, I said, "Well, Jesus, does, does it cost anything? Because we don't have any money." He said, "No, it doesn't cost anything." So thank God they never charged anything for us kids to play, and that's where it all started at at the at the, at the peewee level in the Amherst minor hockey system. Wow. So I, I read in, in my research that it was Pee Wee that you started, Bill. So now we're talking about 12, 13 years old. Now, at that point, like you mentioned, you weren't aware of like hockey players before you. You did like there wasn't any there wasn't any tales of, of, of the history of the game. Was there anything like that at that point or was this just simply a game that you were playing? No, no, it was, uh, like I said, every Saturday night, it was hockey night in Canada. And, uh, you know, the whole family would uh, be around the TV to watch hockey night in Canada, Bonanza on Sunday and uh, uh, Ed Sullivan show, of course. Uh, but uh, I knew it was a six team league back in the day. And I knew every team and every player on every team and every and the, the position of every player. So I became a student of the game at a very young age. And uh, like I said, uh, but having, given the fact that I didn't start playing until late, I wasn't a very good skater. And uh, so when I went to Pee Wee, they, they, they put me in nets. So I played nets my first year, year and a half. And then, uh, but of course, I wanted to be out where the action was. I wanted to score goals and, and that type of thing. So by the time I hit Batham, I was a pretty good goal scorer at the uh, at the minor hockey league level yes now I, I i talked to you a few weeks ago bill and, and some of the things that we went over was we were discussing the fact that at this age now of when you were becoming a pretty good hockey player you would see other players that were very very good older players but the thing is, is that people of color especially in the maritimes just weren't getting the opportunity 
There was no opportunity. There was no scout saying, hey, come to this junior team. There was no pro scout saying, hey, why don't you come to this training camp? There was nothing like that at the time, Bill. No. And, you know, as I became, as I got the experience, uh, you know, up through the junior levels, senior levels, uh, you know, the pro level, International League, American League, National Hockey League, Major Junior, uh, uh, I became, like, again, like a, a, a student of the game, and I, I could assess talent with my eyes closed, and I was very, very good at it. And that's when I realized that the older generation of black players before me never got an opportunity to play because I would, I'd, I'd go back through them. And I say, geez, that guy would, it was, was good enough to play at this level. That guy was good enough to play at this level. And uh, we had a local senior team that was very good. But I don't, ever, I don't ever recall seeing a black face on that senior hockey club or a black player ever being invited to their training camp. And then uh, still then at that time, it didn't sink in with me about the closet bigotry that went into some of the, that were that existed in some of the small towns in Nova Scotia. Exactly. Now, this is a part of, of the story, Bill, that kind of excites me because this kind of proves how opportunity means everything. And when someone gets an opportunity, it really depends on what they do with it. They can go all the way or they can make nothing of it. Now, there came a time where you were offered a little bit of a package to go out west. You were offered a package to work, not only get a, make a good living working in a factory, but also playing for a hockey team in Kitimat, if, I, if I'm saying that correctly. Can you yeah. explain that opportunity, how that came about and, and how you embraced it and actually started it? Well, you know, I had uh, led the junior hockey club in Amherst and scoring, I think, all three or four years that I played. And when it really hit me, when I, after I graduated from the junior program and then I went to go to the game and they, the guy put his hand up and stopped me and wanted me to pay to get in after I'd given them four years of my life. Uh, <laughs> You know, I started off in the local, what they call the industrial league then, which was a bunch of local guys and from three or four little small communities around. And of course, I was the top of the, you know, at the top of the scoring uh, first or second. I think that the guy keeping the stats was in first place, but he was a pretty difficult guy to get ahead of because he had to, he kept the stats. But uh, anyways, uh, a guy named Gary Lewis, who was a hell of a hockey player in his own right, came home for his dad's funeral. And he heard about me as a hockey player and the local senior team in Kitimat was looking for players and they would hook you up with a, uh, hook you up with a job at Elkan, uh, the loom smelter. And, you know, and uh, so, geez, I went out there and, and uh, the, Christ, they were paying five times as much as they were paying at home. <laughs> so I had to sign on the dotted line for life. And then I got to, I got to play with the local senior hockey club and, Again, scoring goals always came easy for me. And I led the Pacific Northwest Hockey League in scoring three years in a row and set all kinds of records. And that's where I got scouted at. It was up in the Pacific Northwest uh, Hockey League. Yes. Now, now, Bill, you know I can't let you off that easily, right? We're going to have to go over some of these numbers, some of this production that you did, because I'm a stack guy, Bill, and I found it incredible that someone actually put up these numbers, especially someone that's working full-time and that isn't just, you know, has a schedule only for hockey. So let me get to it. 206 points I have recorded in 80 games. Now, I believe these were the last two seasons. 206 points in 80 games, Bill. So wow. that's enough. Hey, man, that's enough to, 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 to be making headlines nationwide. So now this is what I'm more excited to talk about. I'm more excited to talk about Mr. Tom McVie. These 206 points introduce you to a gentleman named Tom McVie. Can you explain who Tom McVie is, what he means to you, and what he did for your career? Well, I'll tell you, uh, I'm having a hard time to hold back the tears right now when you talk about Tommy McVie and how good he was to me and and how much he taught me the game, the pro game. And uh, I, I just can't say enough good things about him because I was such an underdog going into training camp. Um, 
they they basically you know you you had your 19 year old guys that they draft that went in the NHL draft you had the guys that uh, were assigned there by the by the pro club uh, you know assigned to the international league assigned, assigned to the american league and so i had some pretty big odds to overcome not only the fact that I didn't. Uh, I never played the major junior, and uh, the uh, I was black, and nobody knew anything about me. But the thing was, was that Tommy seen enough in me. Uh, he gave me an opportunity to uh, opportunity to play, and like I said, I I wrote him a letter, and uh, he just uh, you know I wrote a lot of letters, but he was the only guy that ever got back to me. Another guy got back to me, but said he did didn't have room and that was bill tory uh because he was with the long island ducks back in those days and uh, the reason i wrote him was because i was playing summer hockey with some of the ex-pros and that's when i asked them do you think i could play professional hockey and they said you could play with your eyes closed and so i went on to have bigger and better uh, uh and longer careers than any of those guys that were working at the uh the, at the summer hockey schools and uh, like I said, when it comes to Tommy McVie, uh, man, I would, there's nothing I would not do for that man. If he told me, Billy, you, you know, your life's over and I want you to go jump into the ocean full of sharks, I would probably do it. Uh, he, I, I just can't say enough. And uh, I spoke to Tommy, oh, probably eight to 10 months ago. If I call him, he always returns my call. Really? And uh, just, uh, Oh man, I like I said, any I mean, Tommy was good to all his players. He was a player's coach. There's no question. And the, the thing about Tommy McVie was a big stickler on conditioning. And he had guys in shape, and he had guys playing ten pounds lighter, fifteen pounds lighter than they did uh, twenty years before. And he prolonged their careers. He probably put another four or five years on their hockey careers. Yes. Yeah, so now. This is what this is the, the smile that I have on my face is a smile because I love that 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 you have a relationship with Tom McVie like this. Like I, I think it's incredible. I have people like that in my life too. But what I want to get more specific for is the Dayton Gems. That was the team that he got you the, the tryout for. He scouted you, he knew you were more than good enough to be there. And he invited you to camp. Now, my question is, brother, is that when you went to this camp, you're going for other people's jobs. People aren't used to seeing guys that look like Bill Riley at their training camp. Now, again, I saw what you did that first year. I saw the penalty minutes you put up. Bill, can you talk about the physical part of it? The physical part that you had to do in training camp, those preseason games where you had to prove to people that you weren't going to put up with any type of abuse because you were breaking barriers. Well, yeah, it, it was. I mean, you had to be a warrior back in those days because when uh, a lot of the locals around here talked to me about uh, the movie Slapshot, I tell them that that movie was not that far exaggerated. 90% of the stuff in that movie actually happened and i played against billy goldthorpe who was ogle ogle thorpe and that i played against all those guys and you, you know we had to fight uh, a, a lot of tough physical guys uh back in the day but uh i was like a sitting duck i guess i was the only black guy on the team and uh as you know there was a lot of racial uh, unrest in the u.s back in the 70s and uh you know they were they were coming for me. There's there was no question about it. They were coming for me, and uh, little did I little did they know how well I could fight because I grew up in a very very tough neighborhood, and you had to be able to handle yourself. And the other thing about it was uh, I had great teammates. My my white teammates. Oh my God. I mean, God bless his soul, Jim Petty's gone, you know, and I had Gordy Lane and Larry Belanchuk. I had so many guys, guys want, you know, picking fights with me and they would step in and, and uh, take the guy on, right, to, to, to defend, defend my honor, honor because of the name calling. I'll never forget the time in Dayton, I believe it was in Dayton, and the guy called me, uh, I forget what that, he, well, you know, he dropped the embalming, whatever. Our goaltender, Jim Petty, Seaweed, they used to call him. He was a Boston Bruins prospect and did play some games with Boston. 
Jimmy went right in the stands after him to, def to defend my honor. And that's the kind of teammates that made it easy for me to make the transition to play professional hockey. Yes, and those same teammates are the guys that will be in contact for the rest of our lives because the things that we had to go through with those guys, and that's what I try to explain to some of my really close black friends, Bill, like when we get into all the racist stuff and like, oh, you know, this happened, that happened, I'll try to explain to them. My white teammates that were there during those times where I was threatened as a person because I was different, and I was being centered out, those guys, I'll never be able to, to thank them enough because they were really there at a time of need. And, and I can only imagine the amount of teammates that you had that were there for you at, at your time of need, fortunately, having to go through this type of stuff. Well, ab absolutely, absolutely. And not only that, I mean, I played in Dayton, Ohio, and I can't say enough about the people in Dayton, Ohio. Yes. How how good they were to me and my family, and the, the Dayton Club uh, Booster Club, uh, uh, especially. And there was an, an old elderly lady there. She's probably gone now. Uh, Granny Bowers, her name was, and she was so good. I can remember taking my uh, my little fella in her arms and and uh, you know rocking him to sleep and and uh, like I said the people of Dayton I was very fortunate to play in Dayton Ohio because they certainly uh, they certainly they certainly took me under their wing I mean I had my own uh, my own fan club uh, there they used to have T-shirts printed uh, you know Bill Riley meaner than a than a junkyard dog right and I had yes. to like, I mean and. Uh, uh, you know, and when I, it, but I had Dayton, Ohio was a friendly place, but once I got on that highway, I can't remember if it was 45 or whatever it was that we'd go down to Toledo or we'd go down to Columbus, <laughs> things would change. Then it became World War II, right? <laughs> yes, of course. Of course. So now, so now, Bill, th this was an amazing year. The first year pro, obviously, the, the Dayton Gems, you know, the 63 games, you know, the nearly 30 points, nearly 300 penalty minutes really made your mark. Now, let's talk about this game with the Washington Capitals in 1974-75. Let's talk about how you found out about it. Let's talk about how you found out that you were going to be the third player, Bill, in history to play in the National Hockey League. Well, it... Uh... I believe that came after uh, uh, I fought the three guys in Toledo, Ohio, and uh, they were three of the toughest guys in the league. And uh, I got the decision in all three fights. And yeah. uh, the, the, uh, so Bill Riley went from a name that nobody knew in the International Hockey League to being the hottest name on the wire at that time. That's what they call it. They had a wire. And the players that were up for trade or players that were on waivers – uh, they they put them on the wire, and uh, I'll never forget uh, Coach McVie come out that morning, and uh, he called us all into a little uh, area in the corner of the rink, and uh, basically said, uh, "We got a guy. We got a guy in our hockey club going up to the big club, going up to the Capitals." And uh, I never dreamt for one minute it was going to be me. There were so many other good players on that hockey team, right? And yeah. when he said, hey, my, my knees got weak, I said, oh, my God, I can't believe this. And uh, and he said, uh, he said, uh, uh, Riles, he said, uh, the wires never stopped. Everybody in the league wants to trade for you. And uh, anyway, so. I got called up and I went up to the I went up for the game against the Broad Street Bullies against the Flyers, and they had all the heavyweights there, and I was on the starting lineup. And my God, when they were playing the national anthem, I was shaking so bad, I was trying to hold on to my legs, and for shaking so bad, I was so nervous. And uh, so I, I I got up and I played that one game, but I wasn't ready to play at the National Hockey League level at that time. But that one game taught me what I needed to go back and work on to prepare myself to go back if I ever got another shot. And when I got the second shot, I made sure I was ready. Yes. Now, this is where things get incredibly interesting, Mr. Riley, because 
when you do make the team per se okay so now this is the 76 77 season now i mean we're kind of jumping over this 69 game 66 points 301 penalty minute season the year before which obviously you put in the work bill you proved that not only could you hang tough with all the big boys on the physical side but now you become a point per game guy for the gems for, for your beloved gems right the following year oh sorry go ahead bill yeah no well, that was a good year i mean i i went home in the summertime and i said i can play in this league and i can play well in this league and I got to stop being intimidated by guys coming out of the Quebec League with 120 points, guys coming out of the O with 100 points, guys coming out of the Dub, you know, with 100 points and 200 minutes and 300 minutes and 400 minutes back in the day, right? <laughs> That's when I realized, you know, I wasn't afraid of anybody. I never had no fear, right? I never had no fear. You want to go, let's go. And we're going to go. And no, no grabbing on and clutching. We're going to stand back and throw, right? And may the better man win. And uh, and uh, like I said, uh, I'd like to think that I won more than a loss. You, nobody wins them all. Uh, the, you know, there's going to be there's day, there's nights you're going to get caught on an off night. And you're not prepared, and if you're not prepared at that level, then you're going to get you know you're going to get stung. But like I said, I uh, I'd like to think I, I I won a whole lot more than I lost, and that was just the way it was back in those days. I mean, every team had the young guns. Uh, gunning for uh, you know gunning for tough guys in the league and uh, if so-and-so was the toughest guy in the league there was no, there was no difference to like you're trying to dethrone the, the, the heavyweight champion like you know Muhammad Ali going after George Foreman right it was that's what it was back in the days uh, you know you had to get the guns out of the holsters fast and you had to be able to throw them and uh, and so that 300 minute year I think I'm, I'm pretty sure I made the all-star team that year yes you and did you know, and then the next year I got off to, to a real good start and then I, I got called up. So, yes. Now, this is what is on paper. Okay, Bill? Like, so now this is coming from a former player that is, is a big historian of the game and really wants to, to make things right. You made a National Hockey League team and you became... You know, you were the third player to play in the league. You played a game, you know, two years previous. Now you've made the team. But now, Bill, on this team, there's another black hockey player. Right? There's another black hockey player, Mike yeah. Marzo. Okay? Yeah. So now, the NHL has a situation where not only are they – reaching different demographics. They're having black hockey players enter the league. Now, this is incredibly new. This is very controversial, but this is incredible history, incredible progress. Not only do they have another player coming in, but they have another player joining a second black player. They have two black players. Now, two black players. But now these two black players, they're on the same line. They're on the same line, Bill. You got number two and number three on the same team, on the same line, become great friends, become lifelong friends, okay? That's an opportunity in my mind to really make some noise. That's a big part of NHL history, period. Yeah, there's no question about that. And uh, Mike Marzen was a great teammate you know, and a great friend. And we still, we still talk two or three times a month. And, uh, you know, the thing is, is that, and, and we talk about this, we made history that night. I, I didn't, I didn't realize it at the time. I don't even know if Mike did. He was younger than I was. We made history that night. We made NHL history that night. We were the first two players of color to ever play in the same team. And the first two players of color to ever play in the same line. But I've never Ever over the years, unless I missed it, I have never seen the National Hockey League acknowledge that, you know. And I mean, they, you know, they 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 acknowledge Willie because Willie was the first, and nobody can ever take that from Willie, yeah. right? Willie made history being the first, but we also made history being the first two blacks to play in the same team, first two blacks ever playing the same line, and uh, you know, 
the two of us endured a lot. We endured a lot back in the 70s. Uh, we got, and we kept our mouths shut because we wanted to make it, we didn't want to rock the boat and we didn't want to, we wanted to make sure that we were creating an opportunity for more young players of color to come up and play in the best league in the world. Yes, and there was incredible sacrifices that you guys made. And one of the most, most intriguing things, Bill, that, that I read, that I hear you mention, is the point of pretending not to hear things that you hear. Can you explain that to some of the listeners, that art that you just mastered? Well, you know, guys would make racial remarks, you know, type of thing, and you know, is you know, sort of, sort of had to ignore it, right? And uh, uh, you, you know, and, and that goes back to I played for the Halifax Junior Canadians years ago. I had five points in five games, and I probably had uh, fifty minutes in penalties or sixty minutes in penalties. But I ended up uh, over a, a situation. I ended up fighting with one of my teammates who was the captain of the team. He started it, and I finished it, and I got kicked off the team, right? Yeah. And uh, I said, there's, a, you know, fights are, weren't uncommon between teammates. But yet, I, if I beat him up, he started it, I beat him up. But had he beat me up, I would have still got kicked off the team. Yeah. Because, because that's the way things were back then. So that was one of the uh, life experiences I had that was always playing through my mind. I had uh, lots of times teammates would make a slip in the dressing room, right? Type of thing. And then somebody else would hust them or whatever, right? I never made a big stink about it. I would uh, get them by themselves and I'd go have a talk to them. And uh, lots of times they didn't even know what they were saying or some of the words they were using, they didn't even know what it meant. And uh, some of the people that made slips that I played with are now my best friends. You know, because yeah. I, I didn't jump, jump, jump them and beat the shit out of them, right? I talked to them, that type of thing. And I always thought that the National Hockey League would have been better off, would have been a better place, and they wouldn't have had so much controversy had they taken the time to hire Mike Marsden and I and have us go talk to the teams, not only the National Hockey League teams, but we go talk to the minor league clubs as well because the minor league clubs is where probably a lot more of it happens. You know, and uh, and uh, I, 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 I really felt then and I really felt now that we could pay, play a major, make a big contribution to erasing a lot of the, the uh, uh, racial unrest and racial things that go on. Like, you know, they had the two incidents there. Yes. One kid, I think, one kid, I think, sort of got hung out to dry. Uh, and, uh, you know, I, I always wanted to contact that kid and talk to him, but, but when I read what he said and what he meant, I really and truly believe in my heart that that guy didn't meet, didn't meet, didn't make a racial slur because he done that after every fight, regardless if he fought whites or blacks. So that's where you got to have the common sense to come in and, and know the difference. Right. And yes. if you guys in a room and talk to him one at a, one by himself one by the other guy by himself and then the two together you can fix those things and the thing is bill is that if there was influence that there should be such as people like yourself and mr marzen if you guys had influence like you should right now i bet you there would have been a different outcome because you guys would have been a part of that process do you understand what i mean now, now this is what this is what I want to get across here, Bill. Again, here's another example: a former player that's a fan of the game, a fan of the NHL history. When I saw you and your granddaughter in Washington, okay, which I want you to talk about, but when I saw you drop that puck, do the ceremony, okay, when I saw that, as a as a fan, it was so powerful. For me to see Mr. Bill Riley in a Washington Capitals uniform doing a ceremony 
in recognition of the fact that he's an alumni, in recognition of the fact that he's a part of history. Now they're not they're not getting into all this. This is this is my mind. This is how I feel. And I was moved by it, Bill. So if if all that took was you showing up there and doing a ceremonial puck drop for for former players like me to, to be all fired up and so happy. Could you imagine the impact of you and Mr. Marzen having as an official title with the NHL, the influence that you guys would have? I, I want to make, make a point here because everyone that saw that, Bill, on social media, live on television, I bet you they felt the exact same as I did. Can you explain that night? Can you talk about your granddaughter a little bit? And, and I, and I want to tie all this into how important it is for this noise to be made right now. Well, I'm going it, to, it was an emotional night for me and I, I cannot thank the Washington Capitals enough. I mean, uh, you know, sometimes when you, you know, you, 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 you get older and you, you feel like you're forgotten and you feel like nobody cares, you know, and, uh, you know the achievements that you, the success you had in life, but it's like, hey, something they just they just swept you under the rug and, and forgot about you. So, having said that, the, when the Washington Capitals bought me and my granddaughter uh, down to D.C., and I just want you to know, uh, Sean, we were treated like kings. Yes. I cannot, I cannot thank the Washington Capitals. Uh, I cannot thank the Washington Capitals organization and the alumni. Uh, the way that my granddaughter and I were treated, it was first class from start to finish. Uh, it was nice to, to meet the players. Uh, you know, uh, some of my former players were there, uh, Paul Malvey and Peter Bondra, man, they were just, they just took care of me big time. And the alumni, it was just uh, unbelievable. I met an old elderly black gentleman and uh, uh, God, uh, uh, Coach Coach Neal, and he runs the uh, Fort Dupont hockey program down where we used to practice when I was uh, playing for the Capitals. And what uh, what a, a book of, of knowledge this man is! And uh, never before in my life did I ever see so many black children with hockey sticks and kids of color with hockey sticks in their hands. And it was really, really moving. And this is why this man is in the U S hockey hall of fame, because he puts all the hours and puts the work in with these young black children. And uh, we did a couple of hockey clinics down there, like um, on the uh, art artificial, uh, not artificial ice, uh, like, that, like they, the makeshift rinks that they play ball hockey on. It was an, an incredible facilities that we went to. Uh, and then we went to the on ice session. And again, to see that many children of color with hockey sticks in their hand, it was very, very, very movie. And I, uh, you know, I did the podcast down there with uh, guys that have been around for a long time. And uh, they knew more about myself than I did. They knew that my first year or my first game as an official pro, when I signed the NHL contract, I went into Buffalo and had three points that night. Uh, they, let me put it this way. Uh, they, when, when that was over, I felt 25 years younger and I felt uh, refreshed. I felt, uh, uh, just revigorated. Uh, it was just unbelievable. Uh, the Capitals had two young girls there, uh, Amanda and Erica. They were by my side probably 70% of the time, and and they took care of me and got me from one press conference to another. Can't say enough good things about them. It was just, it was like a, it was like a dream. It, it, and uh, honest to God, uh, my uh, self-esteem probably rose 200% after that, after that ceremony. I mean, that's, I, I, I thank you for sharing that because it's absolutely incredible, you know, hearing that type of story, Bill, because this is powerful stuff, Bill. I mean, you are a big part of hockey history. Look how good you feel once you're in that zone. You know what I mean? You're living out your purpose, Bill. And this is the point I'm trying to make. 
you made such a big impact on me. We didn't even know each other at that time. I'm looking at a social media feed and I'm like, wait a second, here's a, here's an older, oh, oh, that's Bill Riley. Says he's with his granddaughter. I wonder what's going on. Like it was such a big, it was such a big deal to see you in the uniform. You represent such so much, Bill. You represent progress, you represent change, you represent hope. There's a lot of things that you represent. We need to see you in this setting, right? We need to see you and Mike Marsden as consultants with the NHL. These are things that we need. These are things that the, the players that came after you need. We look up to you. We need to see you in your light. And I know it's something that you would like to do, right? You think you'd have enough energy for it, Bill? Oh, absolutely. Like, it, you know, when it comes to helping people, you know, you, you, the energy just comes back to you. And uh, like you asked me about my granddaughter. Well, mm -hmm. my granddaughter's last name is green and uh, she set all the scoring records for Ryerson university. And she did it in the three years uh, versus uh, the records she broke were, were created in, in a four year university term. And she was able to erase all those records in three years. But wow. what blew me away was when she, uh, when uh, she put her sweater on, I was expecting to see green on the back of the, the sweater. And she had Riley on the back of the sweater. And man, that teared me up, you know, that she wanted to, you know, wear that sweater with her grandfather's name on it. Yes. And I, I'm so extremely proud of her and her accomplishments. I mean, she, I believe she got rookie of the year with uh, Western University the first year she played there. She did some incredible things. Then she had to set out a year to, to transfer to Ryerson and then for her to erase the records and, and uh, set her own, that uh, that was a, a major, major achievement. But I still feel right now that some of the young players, some of the young black players, that Mike and I could help them a lot. I see, you know, by, by feel there, number two pick overall, struggling a little bit, you know. Yep. If I could get into... If I could get into, you know, having, having lunch with him and having a little chat with him, I'm sure I could help him, you know, uh, improve his, his career uh, type of thing. And like I said, I basically was a black man in a white man's game back in the 70s, yet I was the captain of two professional hockey clubs. And that speaks volumes. Uh, my kids are always asking me, dad, you don't talk about yourself. You never say anything about yourself. You know, you go fishing, you don't talk about anybody, anything. You don't go anywhere. They said, you know, and then uh, old teammate, Jerry Meehan, who used to be the uh, general manager of the Buffalo Sabres. Yes. I watched a, uh, I watched a program where Jerry was speaking on my behalf. Uh, and that, uh, Jerry Meehan made the statement. He said, Bill Riley was the first player of color to play meaningful minutes in the National Hockey League. Yes. Yeah. I didn't realize that. I didn't, I didn't even, that thought never even crossed my mind. But then when I reflect back on it, I'm saying, hey, I'm jumping over the boards every three minutes. I'm playing on the, uh, I'm playing on the power play. And I'm out there in the last minute of the period, last minute of the games to get the puck out of my own end. So, like I said, I, not only was I good offensively, I was really good defensively. And back in the air, when they had the Broad Street Bullies, I was I could fight. So I was a three-dimensional player. And that was one of the things when I got sent down that year to Hershey, I couldn't figure out because I had three things I could offer. And there was guys there that had only one thing that offer, and that was to get the tap on the shoulder once or twice a game to go out and fight. Yeah. Exactly, Bill. And, and and just to add to that, just so the listeners know, you know, it's funny because when I get to talk to guys from this era, they, they can all confirm it to me. But I mean, the Broad Street Bullies are known to be the toughest team. But another team that was right there with them were those Pittsburgh Penguins at those times. Those Pittsburgh Penguins, they had just as much depth. And I know that you had to go to war with those guys as well, right? So I mean, there's even more to it than what you're saying. But, but even to add to that, Bill, like when I watch the CBC special on you, okay? And now I'm listening to award-winning, you know, broadcasters and journalists and, you know, and, and they're getting right into it. 
And pretty much what they're saying is Mr. Bill Riley was pretty much the first regular player that was black in the NHL, right? Like that was, that's the research that I first read. I mean, Mr. Willie O'Ree, I mean, he's, he means so much to hockey. The man played 44 uh, games um, and, and that's a, a blessing in itself. But, but Mr. Riley, what you were able to do with not only the physical end of it, but playing those regular shifts. Now we're being modest by that. You were one of the top forwards, okay? You were one of the top forwards. You were gifted in that area and you were, and you were just as tough as any of those guys getting the tap once or twice a game to go on the ice. So to me, that is, that is, that is mind boggling, okay? It needs to be recognized. Um, I know, Bill, that when, when the squeaky wheel gets, gets the oil, I know that with awareness becomes, becomes action. A lot of people aren't aware that this stuff is happening. No. A lot of people aren't aware that number two and three played on the same team, on the same line. People are learning this with shows like this, Bill. Okay, We're getting it out to the people that need to know, right? The, the, the Black History Tour bus recently came to Toronto. All the people are talking right now. I can't wait till our episode comes out. I'm, I'm doing a, a live show tonight with Kerry Goulet, Gooch Live at the bottom line downtown in Toronto. And I can't wait to talk to him about our conversations today. Things are going to get done. We are a team right now, Bill. I love the fact that I can call you a friend now, right? And I've looked up to you for a long time. So I'm 40 years old. We may look the same age, but ladies and gentlemen, this gentleman's a little bit older than I am, right? But I'm going to be fighting for what we're talking about. And I can't wait to get to that. Now, back to the CB. Sorry, Bill, go ahead. Were you going to say something? I, I just, I find it ironic that they have a black tour. NHL has a black tour bus and I know nothing about it. Well, that's yeah. the thing. That's the it, thing, Bill. It's yeah. not, it's not being publicized enough. It's not being big enough where everyone's being contacted, invited out, being flown out for, 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 you know, for heaven's sake. Why not? Right. Why not? They, yeah. Well, like I said, the, the thing is, is that the thing that Mike and I, Mike, Mike and I, uh, the National High League has hired some people of color, but they never played. They never played, so they can't relate to what Mike and I went through. They can't relate to what young Quentin uh, Byfield is going through. Uh, you know, um, uh, what's Mr. Evander Kane. Yeah, Evander Kane, right? Man, oh man, if, if I had been working for the NHL, I would have had I would have had my wraps on Evander. And I'm a kind of guy that can get through to people, you know, and and help people. We wouldn't be we would be great friends today believe me yes and i still like to reach out to him and 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 talk to him and like man when i watch the edmonton highlights i the first i'm looking for i'm looking for advander I, I want advander to, to do well I, I i see he's got 15 goals already and stuff like that and you know if, yeah. if i had information i said now go for 20 go for 20 make sure you get 20 and, uh, you know, and, and set yourself up for another big, uh, you know, a big multi-year contract and keep your nose clean and, and, and go and, and, and use your God-given talent to set, set yourself up for life for you and your family, you know? Yes. Uh, so, like I said, you, 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 can't, you can't hire somebody to, to do a brain operation who's not a doctor, you know? <laughs> and uh, I'm just, I'm saying you're, they're hiring people that never... You know, I, I mean, I, I, and I'm not, I don't even know who they hired. I just know they hired somebody, but yeah. I know why would you not go out and get players that play players that went through very, very difficult times and can relate to a, a kids of color that are, if they're having issues or there, there, there's a, you know, preventative medicine. My grandfather always said, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure, you know? And, and uh, that's what I think Mike Marsden and I could do for the National Hockey League. I believe that too. I think that we can get it to that point. I think the, the, the right noise needs to be made in front of the right people and we're going to get there, Bill. Now, Bill, one other thing that made a lot of noise 
Ben, was the 1979-1980 season. I want to talk about the Winnipeg Jets a little bit because I know, although it was a, sh a shorter than it should have been stay, okay, Bill, I know it was a short stay for you, brother, right? But you produced while you were there. And another thing that you did was you scored a goal in 1979 in Maple Leaf Gardens in Toronto. And I just, I, I have the footage on this video you just hear the Toronto crowd booing you and you're raising your hand in glory and your teammates are all grabbing you. It was so such a beautiful thing. Do you remember that goal? Oh, I remember very, uh, very clearly. I mean, I had the uh, Wayne Gretzky uh, blue helmet on. And uh, yeah, I remember there I got the puck and deke the goaltender and slid her in the net. And, uh, and, you know, I mean, it was a big thrill for me because like uh, the original six back in the day, you know, what Toronto was one of the original six. So to score in Maple Leaf Gardens, where I had watched so many games over the years and so many great players, I mean, it was just, ooh, it was something else. And, uh, you know, and like I said, I, uh, you know, I got, I never got one in Montreal, but I, I got it in the Olympia and, and a few of the other original six Chicago stadium and a few of the original six arenas and uh but that goal yeah that was because i knew all my friends and family back home would be able to see it on tv right that's right so that now now i didn't look up the day of the week but was it a saturday night bill oh my god i, I couldn't tell you if, if i played six months ago i couldn't tell you what day it <laughs> but uh well, i i don't know i just i'm just hoping it was a saturday night yeah. right and, like I said, uh, I'm not very good, uh, as you as you know, uh, with uh, electronics and technology, right? I just hey. uh, just a good old boy from the country, right? That's right. You're a lot better than many. Trust me. Now, now back to when we were talking about the leadership role, Bill, the, the captaincies that you had, right? Now we have to talk about. The, the time that you got to play in the Maritimes at the AHL level, okay? I mean, you're a Calder Cup champion, my man. We got to talk about that. That's a really big deal, Bill. Well, you know, I can remember Tommy McVie telling me years ago, and, uh, and actually I won a Turner Cup in Dayton too as well. Yes, right? you did. Internationally. And I remember Tommy telling me, you can uh, – you know, you can play your whole career and never play on a championship team or never. And he says, you're going to remember guys that you played with over the years. But if you you win a championship, then you're going to remember every guy in that team. And uh, so that was as a captain of the hockey club. That was a speech I made to my teammates on the New Brunswick Hawks back in 81, 82. OK. And uh, yep. Stevie Ludzik. Stevie Ludzik went on to coach, you know, at various levels. And Stevie cut Stevie Ludzik said, "I use that line that you uh, you told us years ago when we won that Calder Cup." And that was one of the things that I took from Tommy McVie. And uh, you know, Steve Ludzik and Steve Larmer, who scored 500 goals and went on to score 500 goals in the National Hockey League. Jack O'Callaghan, who just uh, played for the Miracle on Ice team. I just re we I just reached out to him. Uh, uh, Bobby Janicek, who was our goaltender, was now the goaltending uh, coach for the Ottawa, uh, the Ottawa Hockey Club. Uh, you know, so you don't forget these guys. And uh, But, the you know, they've all, without question, Mike Kaziki, who was a big uh, first-round draft pick, they all, you know, it's really nice. They, they say I was the greatest captain they, they ever played for, and that includes captains that are guys that were captain in teams in the National Hockey League. So that's a, a tremendous honor when those players make those types of statements. You know, that really makes me feel good. Well, I'll tell you one thing. Mr. Steve Ludzig is a huge, huge fan of yours, my friend. It was actually his birthday yesterday, so I, I have this—he's fresh on my mind. But man, oh man, are you guys some similar characters, the two of you? You guys are some powerful men. I'll tell you that. Some warriors at that. Yeah, that's Ludzig's like strong, right? Ludzig's strong. I'm going to tell you something. When he's battling that cancer, waiting to get a cancer transplant, right? And uh, him and I, Mike Kaziki, were going back and forth, and like lots of times, Ludzi was was too uh, too you know too weak to talk very much or very little, and uh, you know, and so I would 
find out from his wife, Marion, I'd call all the time to see how he was doing. And uh, the thing was, when he did go in for his liver transplant, I told his wife, I said, I'd be sitting in the parking lot waiting for the results, you know, this COVID. But it was COVID and you couldn't go nowhere. You couldn't do nothing. You couldn't travel across uh, from one province to another. That's but right. I told I said the, the uh, our, our brotherhood is so strong that man when you're going in for that that life-saving operation i said bill riley be sitting in the parking lot in his car sleeping in his car waiting for the results right oh that's some powerful stuff bill i, I really appreciate you sharing that man because you guys mean so much to me and 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 you know like i've, I've i don't think i've been inspired more by people that i have been lately and like ludzy man Man, he's he's really changed my view on life. And, you know, hearing you talk about him like this, Bill, like it's just it's just incredible. It's a beautiful thing for me. And I, I really appreciate you sharing that, my man. For sure. Um, yes, no, for sure. And like so the, the thing that I find like most impressive Bill, is that, I mean, towards the end of your career, you didn't really let up. But then when you did finish playing, there was some really important things that you did, especially for coaching. Okay. And, and the biggest thing like, like, like for me was seeing what you did with Moncton. Now I know there's a story there. I also know that you were incredibly successful there. So set set aside all the sideline stuff. Let's talk about the success that you had with that unit. Well, I, I'm like I coached a tier two team very well with them as well, but the major junior team, we got in late. Uh, we had, uh, uh, you know, it was just a last minute deal, and uh, uh, Robert Irving decided he wanted to own a major junior team because he was always involved at the at the uh, tier two level, and uh, I coached for him there, and we had great uh, great teams there and great success. Uh, the thing with the major junior level, as everybody knows. Your your three twenty year olds and your two Europeans are your are your nucleus. We yeah. did not have, as an expansion team getting in late. We had no U Europeans, and uh, we had you know we had a couple of twenties. Uh, uh, yeah, we had two twenties, and one twenty we ended, we traded at the end. But the thing that they didn't realize was you can't compete at the major junior level if you don't have that nucleus of five to start with. So our best players were 16 and 17 years old. So I said, if I'm going to lose, I'm going to play those kids so that they're going to be ready. And that's what I did. And, and of course, when you're playing 16 and 17 year olds and your 19s, your 19s, your 18s, 19s are sitting on the bench. Well, you know, you're going to create turbulence. Yeah. And, uh, you know, so they complained, they complained about me, but I knew what I was doing. I mean, I know the game and every one of those 16 and 17 year olds went on to play five years of major junior hockey because mm -hmm. of the experience that I gave them at an early age. Uh, when it came to horse trading, there was no one better. I, uh, I sent our owner to the draft two years in a row with 10, 10 picks. One zero, 10 picks in the first five rounds, two years in a row, and always two, two firsts and two seconds, you know, and there might have been a, a, a third and, and three fours, but anyways, 10 picks, unheard of, unheard of. But the problem was I never got, I never got to see the, 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 the fruit ripen, you know, and somebody else enjoyed my, you know, my, the fruits of my labor. And I don't mind saying they messed it up royally because uh, we were in such a position with such good young players and so many draft picks, you know, we had a real legitimate shot at the Mem Cup, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Big time. Now that, that part of your life um, seems to be like, you know, like, like the, the Moncton team in general when you were there, it, it, it was really put on the map. And like, so the point I'm trying to get to is that like the impact that you made for the popularity and everything, like, like I got it. I got to give my hats off to you that for Bill. Now, do you, I, and, and that is part of what I believe, like 
the timing for the Hall of Fame. I want you to talk about that a little bit, like the Nova Scotia Hall of Fame, like what that meant to you and, and how you thought the timing, all that worked out. Well, it's like I had told you earlier, Sean, I never, ever, uh, you know, I just felt myself very blessed and, and very lucky to be able to, to have lived my dream and play at the National Hockey League level. But it's like I had told you earlier about my children say, Dad, you you know, you don't promote yourself enough. You don't, you know, you don't, you never tell, you go places and you never tell anybody that uh, you played in the National Hockey League. You, you know, you just, uh, you, you're in and you're out and nobody knows. And then people call later on and say, Jesus, I didn't know that guy uh, played the National Hockey League. He was in my, he was in my restaurant or he was in my store or, you know, a type of thing. Uh, I just... I never thought, I just never thought I, cause I, when I come back, I was always, I came back. I still hung around with the same guys that I grew up with. I didn't go looking for rich friends or, you know, mucky mucks or higher ups. I, I just hung around with the same people I grew up with. And, uh, you know, and I didn't go, uh, I find out now, like if I had, of, uh, if I had of went for political favors, I probably would have gotten a good job. I probably would have got this and I probably would have got that. But I, you know what? Then I owed somebody something. So I didn't, uh, I never ever went down that road. Uh, when the people that uh, nominated me for the, the Nova Scotia Sports Hall of Fame, you know, I uh, can't thank them enough. And uh, it's it's nice to know you went in on the first ballot and, uh, and it was a very, very, very nice ceremony. And like I say, anytime that you can be in the hall of any province. I think it's, uh, it's, it's, it's such a great um, a feather in your cap. And, uh, you know, it, it made my family real, real proud. Of course it did, Bill. So now I want to add to the comments that you're making about your kids, you know, saying that, that you, don't, you don't do this, you don't do that. Now, first of all, Bill, it's not your responsibility to be promoting hockey history okay that's the responsibility of hockey that's the responsibility of the nhl so now let me let me open up on that even further i believe that the answers to a lot of the questions that hockey has about making hockey more inclusive about making hockey more accessible this is what the answer is start promoting people like bill riley and what I mean by that, Bill, is that the hockey people are like, how can we do this? Well, the first thing that you can do is you can celebrate the history. When you can celebrate the history and young kids have something to look up to, something to learn about, something to what the listeners experienced in this episode they're learning about the number two and number three. They're learning about the same team and the same line. That's part of hockey history, Bill. Kids need to learn that. Adults need to learn that. It needs to be celebrated. Once the kids have something to look up to, then they're like, daddy, daddy, I want to be like number two and number three were. I want to break barriers. I want to be the lead by example. I want to be the first this. That's how it happens. People need to aim for something. People want to get to something. They need to celebrate the history, Bill. So this is what's going to be presented time and time again. When anybody that talks to me has a chance to represent anything for the NHL, it's going to keep going back to the history. We're going to need you. We're going to need Mr. Marzen. We're going to need you guys in order to make hockey more inclusive, in order to make hockey more accessible in order to make hockey more worldwide and to increase the demographic, okay? So that's where you're going to be involved, Bill, and I'm really, really excited for you, my friend. Well, like I said, it's always said about, I didn't even realize until about three years ago that I was the first African Nova Scotian to play in the National Hockey League. Really? You know, I, I, you know nobody ever made note of it. Nobody ever, you know... Uh, I, I believe it was a guy from California that that uh, I try to remember his name, a real grand old gentleman, uh, real nice fella. And uh, he's the guy that got after the Nova Scotia legislature saying, how come you haven't honored this man? Because he's the first African Nova Scotian to ever play in the National Hockey League. Right. And uh, glad I wish you could say that guy's name because I'd like to give him credit for it. Um, 
contact. Maybe I'll not forget the name, Bill. Yeah, I'll, I'll look uh, up yeah. the name. And he was the guy that uh, put us uh, the three uh, the three black players from Amherst that played professional hockey. He's the guy that put us in the multi ethnic Hall of Fame, right? And and, uh, and you're talking about you're talking about uh, Craig Martin, uh, yourself, and then your son as well, right? Mark McFarland, yes, yes, and uh, yeah. So the so it, I mean, it takes a guy from California to give us that kind of recognition, right? <laughs> and, yeah. But what does that say for you? And then yeah. in the in home province, uh, the, the, he's the guy that got me recognized as the first uh, uh, black or African uh, Nova Scotian to go into the uh, National Hockey League and have it put into the Nova Scotia legislature on record in the in the uh, history books. So, you know, sometimes you, you know, you just got to scratch your head a little bit. And then so and then another thing I just wanted to mention, Bill, because it's important is the fact that the Amherst Ramblers retired your jersey number eight in a pregame ceremony. Was that a pretty special night as well? Well, yeah, absolutely. It, uh, you know, you, when your old junior team brings you back and, re and retires the number and, uh, you know, one of my old coaches uh, uh, was there, Keith Blinkhorn, and uh, he sort of spearheads things for the old players. And, uh, you know, uh, one of the one of my black teammates that we played played together with, who was a hell of a defenseman and could have, put, in my estimation, could have played pro as well, Marty Davidson. Well, his brother Hal was one of the guys that overseen the uh, ceremony, and he just did an outstanding job. and uh, And uh, we had a great turnout. And uh, like I said, it's an always always an honor to walk into your home rink and see your banner hanging from the rafters. Yes, and and it's and it's always an honor to have a legend like Bill Riley being able to be on your show. And, and sir, like there was a lot of things that we discussed in this episode. I want, this is an episode that I'm probably most excited to get out just because of how important some of these issues are, Bill, right? It's very important. And I can just, cause I'm, I'm, a, I'm a man of a manifestation. I believe in the law of attraction. I'm just imagining it, Bill. I'm imagining it right now. Imagining it right now, us doing something. Hopefully I'd be able to be a part of it, but something that you are a part of working for the National Hockey League as a consultant, as a, as a, as a counselor, whatever they want to call you, Bill. We just need you, buddy. We are part of history and we need you. And, and and not only that, uh, you know, I I, I agree hundred percent because I, I'm good at that stuff. And uh, but the thing is now I I look at uh, I was watching the hockey night there, uh, uh, hockey uh, hockeyville there uh, with Ron McLean. Yeah. And all the kids in Toronto, the people of color in Toronto. You know, they they've got, you know, Asian kids, Indigenous kids, all these kids, you know, uh, playing playing hockey and stuff like that. And I mean, I'd love to go speak to those kids and talk to those kids. And, 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 you know, and talk about the barriers that they're going to have to overcome and how to react to, to uh, some of the doors that will be shut in their face on the way up, you know, through the trenches. Uh, and like I said, experience is your best teacher. And I, I, like I said, I feel Mike and I have so much to offer. But you know what, buddy? We're running out of time. We're running out of time because time waits for no man or woman, right? Yeah. And uh, would love to make a mark with a bunch of young children uh, to help them along the way to make their path easier to, to, to get the opportunity to play in the best league in the world. Yes, exactly. And I'm telling you right now, Bill, I, I'm, I'm excited. I'm excited to be pushing for this. It's something that I believe in. And I, I don't think I've ever been mo more motivated about something than this because I'm, I'm truly behind it, my friend. And what the like what the what the symbol of today was for the history pride determination and resiliency i mean that's what all this stands for that's what you'd be talking to the kids about you lived it you experienced it and you're a real part of hockey history and i really appreciate you coming on today bill like it was absolutely incredible my friend well luck and luck is my pleasure in any time and like i said uh uh, you know, I, I, I mean, there we're talking about uh, having a Kenny Douglas down in Halifax is talking about having a uh, like a black seminar or some type of thing he wants to put together, and he's he's trying to confirm Anson Carter, and Sean, that'd be be good if you could get down for that. You know, uh, that's going to be sometime in middle the middle of June, 
and uh, then you'll run into, you know, even more contacts down here in the East Coast. And uh, I'll take you out fishing. And uh, the other thing is, is that, uh, and I got plenty of room for, for you to stay as well. And uh, the other thing is, is uh, um, what was something else was going on there with that? Uh, I can't. I can't remember it all, but once he sends me some information, I'll relay it on to you. And uh, because you know what, Sean, I always said, I used to watch my granddaughter on the beaches when she would be running on the sand dunes and the, and the pep she had in her step. And she's of Jamaican descent. And uh, I always said, boy, if we could get those brothers in Jamaica on a pair of skates, could you imagine Usain Bolt on a pair of skates? <laughs> <laughs> God, man. We'll get yeah. there, man. We'll get there, Bill. You're amazing, buddy. Um, yeah, no, th th that's incredible. That that's a great way to, to, to end it on, too. Um, but yeah. I would like to thank the listeners for tuning in to another episode of the sheriff featuring special guest, Mr. Bill Riley. Real piece of history, ladies and gentlemen. We're gonna sign off now. Woo!